one of my deep heartbeats is really expressing support, both financial and prayer and time and team support, and to people that have just looked at the Lord and said, okay, God, I'm done running. Like, I will say yes to you. Really, the whole book of Acts is that story, right? It's the story of the calling and the empowering and the sending of the follower of Christ. We've been talking about it for 55 weeks, right? The book of Acts is not the grand story of the birth of the church. The book of Acts really is the empowering and sending of God's people. That the church doesn't exist to gather together and pat ourselves on the shoulder and have contests over who can have the best and biggest programs. The church exists as the sending of the people of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that sending may be across the world, or that sending may be across the room. But it's God's people being sent out from their collective comfortable spaces into the cracks and crevices of culture. That is the story of the book of Acts. We are 55 weeks in, and things are coming to a dramatic close. We are going to be in, entering into the home stretch, and this last section of the book is really all about Paul's trials and struggles as he goes into Jerusalem, goes into prison, and then finally gets transported to Rome where he is hoping to stand trial before Caesar. The first kind of movement in the book of Acts was sort of the birth and the early years of the church under the persecution of Herod. The second section that we just finished was all of Paul's missionary journeys. And this third movement is going to be what happens when Paul falls into arrest uh, in Jerusalem and the trials he goes through getting himself up to Rome, honoring what God has called and told him is going to happen. He's going to stand in Rome with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which essentially is the platform for the gospel going out into the entire world, right? The center of the Roman Empire. Last week, we explored this last little phase of the third missionary journey as Paul Island hops from uh, Miletus, where he had spent time with the Ephesian elders, 33 miles south of Ephesus, poured his heart out to them, had told them that he felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem, where they all knew danger was waiting for him. They begged him not to go, but he said, look, I am compelled by the Holy Spirit. I don't actually know what waits for me there, but I know it's not good because everywhere I go, the Holy Spirit tells me this. Jail and hard times are waiting for you. And so Paul says, you know, what could be worse than going to Jerusalem knowing that? And so they begged him not to go, but he said, listen, I am compelled by God, right, to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. And he lays this sort of heartfelt movement out to the Ephesian elders, and he boards that boat, and the island hop, and they end up kind of going down the coast, and we explored this idea of true biblical fellowship last week as Paul sort of bumps down uh, the Syrian coast, and he encounters believers, and they open their arms, and they embrace him, and we talked last week about how the call the church, the sort of things that we should be fighting for when it comes to fellowship are this sort of intentionality when it comes to connecting, this sort of prayerful, uh, supportive nature that we're called to engage with each other, and the sacrificial love that is really poured out, and we examined that, and Paul stops. Well, his last stop was in that town of Caesarea, right? 60 miles away from Jerusalem, and he spends time with the family of Philip the Evangelist and Philip's four daughters who had the gift of prophecy. And as they're there, this prophet named Agabus comes, and he takes off Paul's belt, this long cloth belt, and he ties Paul's feet in his hands, and he says, listen, God has told me that the person who belongs to this belt, which is Paul, is going to go to Jerusalem and be bound, right? And Paul looks at that household, and he said, and they're basically begging him to go, and Paul looks at the whole household, and he says, listen, am I not ready to be bound, but not only to die for the name of Jesus? And so his companions get up with him, and even some of the believers there in Caesarea get up with him, and they go 60 miles into Jerusalem. And last week, we, we ended right as Paul comes into Jerusalem. What we're going to see today 
is that it's just as bad as Paul thought it was going to be. As all the prophets have said, Paul goes into Jerusalem, and it goes from a warm greeting to a hostile uh, sort of environment of a riot very quickly. And Paul finds himself in the hands of angry men and being turned over to the Roman guards. So um, we're going to explore that with this question on the forefront of our minds of saying, God, what am I ready for? Like, really, what am I ready for? And so if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to uh, Acts chapter 21. Um, we will be in, oh, how about we start in 17? Sound good? So we'll start in 17. And I'm going to move through a, a pretty big piece of text because, as I told Don, we've been building up this arrest of Paul for some time, so we might as well just get through it. So uh, we're going we're gonna to read about 17 verses this morning and then unpack them together. So if you, you got that in Acts 21, verse 17, let's go before the Lord and let's pray, and then we'll, we'll open up together and see what God says to our hearts. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is timeless. God, that it is true, that it is right. And God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts through it. God, we believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take that lightly. Lord, we thank you for the movements in Scripture where you call people to extraordinary things. Lord, we thank you for the echoes of that that follow even through our own lives as followers of Christ. For guys like Dustin that have said yes to you even when it's not easy and even when there's a whole bunch of unknowns and even when that involves a lot of running at times. But God, you never give up and you pursue and you pursue and you pursue and your plan is so powerful. And what you're doing in Paul, God, I want to echo in my own life. And so, Lord, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would teach our hearts. Whatever it is that we need to hear or that you want to speak to us, God, I pray that you would do it. Take a moment in your heart right now, right where you sit, and just ask the Lord to teach you something this morning. Whatever that is, I don't even know what it is. Just ask God to teach your heart. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or around you. We do this each week. We're in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them, that he would do something extraordinary in their life. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would teach their hearts this morning. Lord, we turn this morning over to you. We ask you to reveal truth to us. Lord, we don't discover truth. We don't find it on our own. You are the revealer of all truth. And so, God, speak to our hearts. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem. Chapter 21, verse 17, we're going to see his arrival, his encounter with uh, James and the elders, and then we're going to see how things turn extremely quickly. So when we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they praised God. And they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed? All of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children and live according to, your custom, uh, to, according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow Take these men and join their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth to these reports about you and that you yourselves are living in obedience to the law. 
As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood and from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them, and he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple, and they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides that, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut while they were trying to kill him. News reached the commander of the Roman troops, and the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He had once took some officers, with sol- and when the soldiers ran down to the crowd, when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The ma- commander came up and arrested him in order that he be bound with two chains. Then they asked who he was and what he had done. And some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken back to the barracks. And when Paul reached the steps... The violence of the mob was so great they had to be carried out by the soldiers. And the crowds that followed him kept shouting, away with him. It's a lot of text, but it's really important. And it's one kind of big movement. And so I want us to get through it. Because the question we're going to deal with is going to come at the end. But we've got to understand what's unfolding in Jerusalem that is causing this kind of deep hatred and resentment. Well, Paul shows up in Jerusalem, and the first day he's greeted really warmly by all the believers there, right? That word warmly is actually really interesting because it's the same word that's used in Acts 2 when the, when the believers there receive the Holy Spirit for the first time. It was that kind of welcome reception. Right, And so they're really excited to see Paul. Everybody had known what he was doing and his work around the world, and the believers there were eager to hear those stories. And the next day he gathers with James, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's actually sort of the head of all of Christianity, if you will, because Jerusalem was a central point. James was the brother of Jesus, and he was head of the church in Jerusalem and really head of the movement of Christianity, if you will. And he gathered all the elders. Now, The original sort of movement that began back in Jerusalem at Pentecost was 20 years prior. The church had grown. There were thousands of people now in Jerusalem that were believers. And there were thousands of people around the world as Paul had taken the gospel out on these three missionary journeys. And Paul gathers with with James and the elders, and he shares the story. Now, remember, the third missionary journey, right, had taken four years. In fact, all three missionary journeys combined took 11 years, covered some nine thousand miles and had 55 recorded stops in those uh, middles in the middle section of the book of acts and so james begins to tell or uh, paul begins to tell james and the the leaders what unfolded over the past four years and it says that he told him in detail in other words he didn't spare anything he went about all the encounters and the two years in ephesus and the riot that had broken out there and his movement back to asia and his conversation with the ephesian elders his return to Miletus, and all those things that had happened and he told in detail. And the, and the response is, and they praised the Lord. Right? And they praised God. All that, four years, and they, we get three words. And then that quickly turns to anxiety. Because, see, James and the elders knew that there was a great tension that was unfolding. And so they quickly moved from saying, hey, man, God is good. That's great. We're really excited for you. But look, we've got a pretty significant problem. Because look around you, Paul. 
there are thousands of Jews that have come to believe, right? And because the church was located in Jerusalem, and these are new believers, they are intertwined with deep Jewish customs. And there has been a rumor going around about you. And the rumor is this, that when you teach the Gentiles, you teach the Jewish people among them that they no longer have to obey Moses, that they no longer have to participate in the customs, that in fact they should abandon those ways. That's what's being said about you. And that's why everybody hates you, and that's why they want you dead. And guess what? They're going to find out that you're here. That's what James says. He goes, we can't hide you, right? They are going to find out that you are here. What are we going to do? And it's kind of a rhetorical question, right? Because they already had a plan in mind. And so James says, listen, here's sort of how this is going to unfold. We've thought about it. We've come up with a plan. And we're going to try and show everyone that you really aren't this kind of guy. Now, you got to understand the tension that was involved, right? I mean, the, we saw it back in Acts 15. But the tension between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers was extreme. And in Acts 15, James and the, Jewish, and the uh, Council of Jerusalem had to write a letter to the believers up in Antioch, the G- Gentile believers, basically saying, look, you don't have to follow all the Jewish customs, but there are a few things that you do have to do, right? Or we're asking you to do. But you don't have to, to obey all the circumcision laws. You don't have to do all those things. But we need you to try and fight for gospel unity. So try to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, avoid sexual immorality, don't come in contact with blood. Like, don't do things that's going to cause the, the sort of customs of the Jewish believers that are now following Christ. And your sort of non-Jewish customs, let's, let's not kind of pull those things that are going to cause a lot of conflict. But there was a ton of tension. Because the Jewish believers believed that their deep kind of 4,000-year faith at the time, right, was intertwined with their following Christ. And that the following of the Jewish customs was an important part of their proclamation of who Jesus was. And the Gentiles didn't do any of that. And they saw them as heathens, really. Even though they, they believed in Jesus, they should still be doing the things that the Mosaic law called them to do. And there was a ton of tension. I mean, the church was expanding. And we're seeing new ethnic and new racial lines being poured over. And the Jewish believers were furious. They were just mad. And they were not only the believers that were mad, but the Jewish people were mad. That this guy, Paul, who was kind of in line to be one of the higher-ups in the Sanhedrin, he was a Pharisee, he was one of the inner circle, had given all that up, and was now teaching Gentiles across the world, right, that they could follow this Jesus. And in the middle of it, apparently had been telling the Jewish people they don't have to do anything. They don't need to believe the law of Moses or circumcise their kids or do anything. And the people were furious. And so James says, look, we got to figure this thing out, man. we gotta, we got to do something because this is going to end really, really bad. And he goes, so here's the deal. We've got four guys that have taken a vow, most likely a Nazarite vow, which uh, kind of is laid out in num- number six. And it's a, it's a vow that usually followed someone that was getting a lot of favor from the Lord. They would take 30 days, and they would abstain from food that was made from grapes. Uh, they wouldn't shave their head, and they would stay away from dead bodies. That's what ro- uh, number six says. And then at the end of 30 days, they would go to the temple, they would shave their head bald, they would burn the, the hair from their head, and they would honor the Lord by presenting a sacrifice, usually pigeons or a goat or something of that sort. And they would make a sacrifice as a way of saying thank you to the Lord. And so James says, we've got four guys that have engaged in this vow, all right? And their time is coming to a close, their 30 days is coming to a close, and, and I want you, or we think you should, to go with them to the temple, 
right? And participate in that last week of their purification rites, right? Pay for them to get their heads shaved, pay for their sacrifice, pay for those animals, participate in the purification rites yourself. And this will do a couple of things, right? This will show the Jewish people that you're not an anti-temple, that you're not anti-Jewish customs, but that you support and encourage the Jewish movement, and then it will put to rest all those rumors about you hating, right, when telling Jewish people that they can't do these things. Basically, you're showing them that you'll do it, right? And these guys are believers, and that you can be a believer, participate in the customs, and everyone will see you at the temple, and you'll have your head shaved, and you'll be in the purification. They'll go, oh, surely Paul, he's good. He's good with all this. And they said, this is the perfect plan. This is what we'll do. And Paul, believe it or not, actually just agrees. It says that he went and did just that. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Now, a quick note here, because there have been commentators that have written that this is a tragic part of Scripture, that Paul gives in to legalism here, right, and foregoes the truth of the gospel. But really, if you look at this text in its entirety, right, nothing's really further from the truth. Paul's not caving into legalism. What he's doing is this act of deep love for gospel unity. There's no kind of uh, rule written out that a follower of Christ can't participate in customs, can't have food rituals, can't do things for spiritual disciplines. The difference is when those things become our movement towards salvation or justification. But Paul never taught that nor believed that. Paul's movement was salvation through Christ alone. In fact, it's very clear that he doesn't have to teach the Gentiles to follow this practice. It tells us that in 25. What Paul is doing is basically saying, because these things don't matter in the movement of salvation, I can participate in them for the sake of the unity of the church to try and draw these lines together to further my ministry. Paul's not compromising the gospel. He's making an act of sacrificial love that says, yeah, I could sit here and say, I don't have to do that. I have freedom in Christ. I don't have to participate in a purification vow or be a part of temple rituals or anything like that. But Paul says, essentially, if this is what, if this what it's going to take to keep the peace of the church, then I'll engage in that with these men. I'll participate in that. I'm a Jew and I have a Jewish heritage. Right? So it wasn't a movement for salvation, but it was Paul making this sort of gospel uh, unity thing. Well, he gets to the temple. Paul's done the things that he's going to do, and a couple of guys recognize him because it was the time of Pentecost. You may remember Paul was trying to get from Miletus to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and he gets there. Pentecost was a celebration, a traveling feast of celebration, right? And so people showed up from all, Jewish people showed up from all different countries, and there were people there from Asia Minor, and they recognized that Paul was walking around with this guy from Ephesus, Trophimus. Don't know much about him. We just know that Paul was seen with him. And they saw Paul and they said, hey, there's that guy, that guy that's stirring up all kinds of trouble and telling people not to obey Jewish laws. And what is more, he's with that guy Trophimus and he probably let him inside the temple, which was a kind of a movement that was punishable by death. The Jews had a couple of laws. One, Gentiles were allowed in the outer court. You could do all kinds of things in the outer court of the temple, but no one but a Jewish person was allowed in the inner court of the temple. And if you went in and you were non-Jewish, it was punishable by death. In fact, it was the only time that the Roman Empire, which was still overseeing all of Jerusalem, right, all the area, allowed the Jews to carry a death sentence. And that's if a Gentile went into the inner court temple. And they said, well, we saw this guy with Paul. Surely Paul let him in there, even though no one had seen him in there. But they caused this huge riot. And they start screaming and yelling. And it says that people came running from all over. 
They came running through the streets and this riot broke out and they grabbed Paul and instead of taking him outside of town, like typically happens, like they did with Stephen, they drug him inside the temple gates and shut the temple gates and they proceeded to try and beat him to death. Well, it just so happens that the Roman army had built their garrison, their barracks, right on the edge of the temple and the guard towers looked into the temple courts. You can actually see where that was if you were to even go to Jerusalem today. Looks into the temple courts and they see this sort of ruckus and the entire town of Jerusalem is in an uproar and they send soldiers down and they seize Paul and arrest him, right? It says they arrest him and put him in with two chains, not the wrapper, but with the, the two chains, right? Chains here and chains on his feet. For those of you who didn't laugh, you're probably too old like me. So they put a chain on his hands and a chain on his feet. They arrest him. And they basically say, who are you and what are you doing? But the crowd starts screaming. And, and it says that the Roman commander, his name is Lysias, can't hear over all the screaming. And so they take him back to the barracks. And as he's going up the stairs, the mob is so violent and so angry that the soldiers literally have to grab Paul and carry him up the stairs. Right? And it says that what they were chanting as he was being carried into the Roman uh, army barracks was away with him, which is the exact same phrase, the Greek phrase that Luke records in 23, when Pilate is standing there saying, who do you want? You want me to give you Barabbas, the murderer, or do you want me to give you Jesus? And they screamed away with him, talking about Jesus. Same exact phrase. That kind of angry, insightful mob. And so Paul is hauled into the barracks. Now, it's not going to end well, right? We kind of know that. We're getting this picture of what is going to unfold. But God's movement is happening. God rescued Paul, a Jewish person, from the hands of angry Jewish persons through a Roman army. And the prophecy that we've been seeing over the past few weeks is beginning to come true. So here's what I was wrestling with this week. It really got me thinking, because it's a pretty remarkable scene, right? I mean, Paul goes into town knowing that he's going to face arrest or death or beatings or whatever. He knew it. Um, he goes into town. He meets with the elders. He shares his story. that just got to be overwhelmingly excited. I mean, if you've ever gone, maybe you've engaged in mission. Maybe you've gone overseas. Maybe you've done something. You've seen God do incredible things, and you come back, and you just want to tell the world what you've seen, right? Paul's got that kind of emotion. He shares in detail everything. And the response from the elders and James is, man, God is good. But look, we've got a bigger problem, right? It's kind of squelching that, not intentionally, but being anxious, and saying, look, we got a problem, man. And then watching Paul engage in this sort of humility as he tries to reconcile for the gospel the two difficult sides of the church that were really split. Split. Because the early church was as hot a mess as the modern church. And then watching this angry mob seize Paul and violently try and kill him, right? The same way that it sort of tried to kill Jesus ultimately at the hands of Pilate. And watching Paul being rescued by this sort of Roman guard and realizing that what's coming next of this rescue is not freedom, but something else entirely. And Paul knows that. And I started thinking about this. As Paul sat with Philip the Evangelist last week and his family and his four daughters, and Agabus comes and he ties his hands and feet just like the chains that were bound around Paul's hands and feet, just like the prophecy had said. And the people begged him, like, please don't go. 
Like, if you go to Jerusalem, you're probably going to die. And they begged him. And Paul's response to them in 13 was, why? He actually says this phrase. Why are you breaking my heart? Do you not know that I am ready to not only be bound, but to die for the name of Jesus? And it got me thinking, right? If Paul is ready to be bound and to die, and being bound means to be captured or beaten or arrested, use whatever phrase you want to use there, and die for Jesus, what am I ready for? I mean, all cliches aside, right? As a follower of Christ, what am I really ready for? Am I ready to go to jail? Am I ready to be beat, to be ridiculed? Am I ready to die for Christ? Now, we know that persecution was real. We talked about it a lot over the past 50 weeks, right? Persecution was extremely real. And not that sort of uncomfortable persecution that we tend to define it in our modern culture. We're like, our college professor makes fun of us because we don't believe in a moral relativism. Or somebody in our high school calls us a Bible beater. Or somebody in your work group makes fun of you because you believe in a life after death. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of persecution that will cost you your family, your freedom, your life. Now, most of us think that really doesn't exist. We kind of know in the back of our minds that it exists over there somewhere. But out of sight, out of mind, I don't have to deal with it on my daily life. The most inconvenient thing about my faith living in Oklahoma City is usually that someone thinks I'm narrow-minded. It's about as extreme as it gets for the majority of us. But persecution around the world is real, right? Surely we know that, that 180 people die every month for simply saying they believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the State Department says that there are 60 countries in the, in the world right now today that are actively arresting and killing Christians. 60 countries. Two-thirds of the world. Lives in the reality that if I say I believe in Jesus, today I could die or go to jail. So what am I really ready for? I mean, honestly, am I really ready to die for Jesus? I spent a lot of time thinking about the question. And here's my answer. My answer is this. Yes. That if somebody walked in here today, and this has actually happened in our culture. Somebody walked in here today and they pulled out a gun and they walked up on the stage and they put it to my head and they said, Treb, I want you to renounce everything that you believe about Jesus. I want you to say that none of this is true. And I want you to turn away from it right now. And if you don't, I will kill you. Thought a lot about the question. And I want to believe, and I kind of deeply believe that my answer would be no. Like, I can't renounce the only truth that I've ever known. Right? And in a loving way, try and say, I would die for that belief which is really easy to say, right? But I thought about it and and just tried to really wrestle with it. But but something happened in my heart as I wrestled with this question, which I think is the most sort of, on some level, the supreme question that every Christian should wrestle with. And that is that God spoke to my heart and broke my spirit. Because here's what I believe that God told me, right? This is what I believe God whispered to me. He said, to be wrestling with a faith, a question of whether or not you're really willing to die for me, when you won't even allow your life to be inconvenienced by me. I'm sinful. I'm selfish. I am me-driven. I am anxious. I am afraid. 
and I'm wrestling with the question whether or not I would, I would die for the Lord when I won't even die to myself today. You see, Paul's statement, am I not ready to be bound and to die for Jesus, was a decision that he made years before he was arrested and nearly beaten in that temple court area. It was a decision he made to die to himself. To put his desires for safety, comfort, life behind him. See, Paul wasn't having to wrestle that day with, am I really willing to die for Jesus? What Paul wrestled with years before on the road to Damascus and the days that followed was, am I willing to die to myself? And sadly, the truth of my life is, I can stand up here and say, yes, I would die if you were to threaten to shoot me. But I won't die to my own comfort and my own fear, and my own anxiety. And my Christian life is stuck somewhere between my deep, deep, real, passionate desire to say, Jesus, I will do anything and trek all over this world for you and give everything I have for your glory. Stuck somewhere between that and the reality that my faith exists for my comfort and my safety and my convenience. And it's a really cruddy place to be. But I think that most of us who are really truthful exist there. We exist somewhere between the, God, I so desperately want to have that faith, but I'm so petrified of letting this thing go. And what God was really telling my heart was, before you're willing to say that you'll die for me, just be willing to die to you. And I realized that what, what's happening with Paul is that he made a, a concession years before he ever faced the first moment of physical death for his faith. That he surrendered his life and his desires and his pursuit after that Damascus Road experience completely to the Lord. And my life is a constant battle of surrender and control. So what am I ready for? Well, I'm ready to die to that. Like I'm tired of that. I'm tired of that existence. I'm guessing that part of you is as well. I'm tired of living a faith that is somewhat passionless, somewhat moving through kind of empty movements, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, somewhat big proclamation, very little follow-up, somewhat full of prayers, but yet fully not willing to release the petrifying fears that you have or this one behavior or this one thought or whatever. I'm stuck somewhere between that and wanting to say, Jesus, I will go wherever you lead. So when I ask myself at the end of the week as I wrestle with this text, what am I ready for? The answer is I don't know, but I'm ready to die to that part of me. The part that is anchored in safety and security and comfort and the part that wants recognition and kindness and the part that wants respect and the part that wants to be known and the part that wants to feel comfortable and the part that doesn't want to have struggles and the part that just wants life the way that I put it, right? And our picture of that for each individual is different, but it's the same concept. I'm ready to be done with that. And the question I think really for, for you this morning and for us as a church this morning is what are you ready for? Maybe it's the ultimate question. What is your faith costing you and you, what are you ready to do for it? But more so, what are you just ready to die for?
Because if we're willing to die for Jesus, we have to be willing to die to ourselves. I want to be at a place where that's the question I've already answered. And I can wrestle with the bigger one. But I can't answer the small one. This morning as we close our time and as you move out this week, I really want you to just let that question plague your heart. God, what am I ready for? Like really ready for? Am I really ready to let go of this thing? This fear, this failure, this security, this sinful behavior, this action, this idea, this lie that I have sown into my soul. Maybe it's more than one. This doubt, this anxiety, this fear, I'm really willing to die to that and trust that you are who you say you are. The question really is on the table for all of us, and that is, what are you ready for? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word, that it is remarkably timeless and powerful and true. And Lord, I really don't always like it, but I love it. I don't like the way that you use it to challenge my comfort and challenge my existence. But I love the fact that you love me that much. And God, I deeply believe that as a church and as individuals here, God, that's how much you love us. That you don't want us to just sit and exist and draw breath. That you have deeper movements for us that you are calling us to that begin not with changing the world, but with changing the attitudes of our hearts, dying to ourselves and just saying yes to you, Jesus. God, you invite us, not because you need us, because you want us to know you. And Lord, Paul made that decision. Am I not ready to be bound, but also to die for the name of Jesus? Not sitting there in Philip the Evangelist's house. But he made that decision in some lonely walk somewhere where he finally just said, Jesus, I give you everything I am. Maybe we in this room... Maybe you're calling us to go on that walk. We just deal with that reality that says, Jesus, I'm done. Like, I just, I'm done. And I give all of me to you. So Lord, as we close our time in worship, whatever question or idea you want to burn into the recesses of our soul, God, I pray that you would do it. Don't let us walk out of here nodding and nominally, kind of anomaly just thinking, hey, it was a good question, but God, just press it into our soul. Plague us with us. Haunt us with it. Don't let us escape it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. Let's close our time in worship this morning by standing up together, proclaiming God's truth and his goodness.